The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. It is 8 minutes after 10 o'clock. You're listening to The Talking Point. Good morning. My name is Oliver Dixon. If you've just joined us, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If you've been with us, it's been an honor and a pleasure being in your company all the way with you till 12 o'clock today. In this hour, we're going to speak to three uh, guests, very interesting uh, people I'm going to be speaking to. And we're going to be looking at the protest, the national shutdown from very from from a, a range of different angles that I think are important for us to explore. We're in conversation with Professor Seth Scooper. Uh, he's an anti-apartheid activist as well as the president of the Pan-African Psychology Union and a psychologist as well. We're also going to be speaking to Bataung Kotokwane. Uh, who is a technology researcher at iAfrican. And we're going to be speaking to uh, former statistician general, Padi Liohla. Uh, you can be a part of this conversation. Give us a call, 086-000-2032. Thank you so much to all of you for joining me this morning. Prof Cooper, I want to start the conversation with you. This protest seems to have elicited a level of anxiety within South Africans uh, whether you're in support of it or not, that I think we haven't quite experienced in recent times with organized protest in South Africa. Perhaps we have experienced it with riots, and I think back to the July 2021, uh, um, you know, up, uh, riots. But this is an organized protest, and it is a planned protest, yet elicits similar levels of anxiety. To what can we attribute it as South Africans? To what can we attribute the sudden anxiousness, and I don't know if you can call it a fear, but just anxiousness about protest action altogether. Well, Oliver, I think that what we confront is the tail end of a pandemic which has exacerbated our sense of anxiety. We confront the highest unemployment rate in the world, the lowest employment rate, a 2020 statistic, and my dear friend uh, Pavi will, will, I'm sure, elucidate more on some of this. That, and this statistic, as I say, is from 2020, 74.7% of mid 20s to mid uh, mid teens to mid 20s are out of school, out of work. We've seen the huge dropout rates in our schooling system at all levels. We see the steady erosion of economic integrity uh, and dignity of our people, where uh, some, you know, whatever statistics are used, clearly the majority are in dire poverty, and a very significant number of those live with nutrition uh, impact. They go to bed hungry. They don't know where their next meal is. Against this backdrop, when the calls are made, and they tend to be typically because it's political leadership that makes this kind of call, they tend to be strident and tend to also use language that is not non-violent, mm. even though they, the claim 
is that we stand for a peaceful protest. Mm. Against that backdrop, uh, you you also need to consider something, and you raise, you don't know whether it is fear. Fear, Zico wrote in the early 70s, is an important determinant in South African politics. It has remained an important determinant in our politics over the decades. Mm. And perhaps that fear is reaching uh, its apotheosis right now. You know, it's all out there. Everybody's afraid. They don't know uh, if I'm in studio, whether uh, Oliver stands for X or Y. We want to uh, be safe, but we can't because our law and order mechanisms have crumpled. We don't see visible police at all, except when the calls are made on such a day, and then you probably will see a, 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 some, a modicum of police presence. Mm. So got at a level of government, government has shirked its responsibility, and nobody, to, to anyone's knowledge, has engaged with the protest organizers to, to say, let's have this as a peaceful protest. Mm. And how do you do this in a way that enables participation than invoke fear? If somebody fears you, Oliver, they will not call the station. Mm. They will stay away. They will uh, ignore your voice. Mm. So that kind of encourage, that kind of suasion simply isn't there. Instead, we've learned very well from our practice masters that Obdrach mentality, that if you don't, these will be the consequence. Threatening people is wrong, especially when they are society and the world over. People are at their lowest end in terms of their well-being, psychological and physical health. So those, I think, are the, uh, that, that, that constitutes the backdrop sure. against which you need a concerned, a committed, a compassionate leadership to create real followers rather than ruled by fear or demagoguery. But Tonga, I want to bring you in here. As people have been mobilizing around this protest across various digital platforms, social media platforms, is there anything in the, how they, the language they use that we can deduce about how they feel, what their psyches are like, um, and what the mood of the country effectively is? Uh, you know, um, Dr. Professor Cooper makes the argument, and I think quite aptly so, that even though the protest is purported to be nonviolent. The language that's being used is a language of violence. Is that the sort of language that we've been seeing permeating across social media in the lead up to this? Morning, Brother Dixon, and morning to your listeners. Uh, Brother Dixon, I think it's important to understand how, for the benefit of our listeners, how social media algorithms work. Uh, because there's a there's a there's a particular there's a particular reason why certain content is prioritized or amplified versus the other content, and I think right now what we're seeing we're seeing a very sharp increase um, in terms of content related to keywords such as the national shutdown and sort of other. 
I'm just going to ask you to repeat that. I'm just going to ask you to repeat that last sentence. Where your line was cutting in and out there for a second. Can you hear me now, Brother Dixon? Yeah, we can. I'm not sure if it will hold, but please do go ahead. We can hear you for now. Okay. I was saying for the benefit of our listeners, I'm just going to give them an understanding of how uh, social media algorithms work and for them to understand why certain messages are amplified over other ones. So the first thing is engagement analysis. Algorithms track user engagement. So the more posts and likes and comments and shares a specific content or a keyword gets, the more that, um, that, 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 that piece of content is prioritized. Then we have what we call user-generated uh, sort of images and user-generated uh, content, which looks into the demographics and what information is inclined to that piece of content. So you'd have a situation where um, a piece of content is associated with something that is happening uh, uh, immediately then it's been retweeted by, by many other people. And I think lastly, the other sort of factor is 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 that algorithms use is uh what we call recency recency speaks about how current or how recent the post is the more recent the more engagement and the more sort of user generated content and hashtags and content analysis that is attached to that content we will then start seeing an inclination of it being shared and it being spread out uh through 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 the social media oh but uh, we lost you there once again let's see if we can get you on a stable line because this might not might not hold uh for very long uh, uh dr Liotla, good morning and thank you so much for also joining us here really really appreciate your time F- taking from what um professor cooper said around around uh fear in particular is there a way to deduce as a country, whether we're living in a heightened state of fear and to what extent and compared uh, comparatively to different stages in our democratic life. Um, and I ask this because it's important for us to determine whether or not our politics is becoming a politics of rule by fear. Well, I think that the material conditions uh, inspire fear, particularly the wanton destruction of property that we have seen, the betrayal, the uh, um, electricity, uh, it, uh, very, you know, um, impunity, that things are done with impunity in terms of a uh, uh, show of, of uh, luxuries that are not earned. All, all these things inspire a particular view uh, of the country. And then, of course, uh, we have had uh, load shedding for a long period of time. Uh, the, the conditions have deteriorated uh, so seriously that uh, we don't only face poverty, but uh, we now face uh, the, the naked hunger. Uh, you just need to go to a funeral and you will see how people are tending to scavengers waiting and coming to the funeral uh, for food and not for consoling the, the, the bereaved. So this has ceased and crept in, and you look at the ordinary hygiene uh, yeah. of society, where water we are living in sewer, sewer runs uh, through, and, and disease uh, certainly will be very, very prevalent. So all these things that you see, and the material conditions, uh, are not good for uh, the mental health of, of society and mental being. 
So um, now the build-up uh, to today and, and the escalation, uh, the, the, the military including tanks uh, parading the streets uh, on both sides. The language has not been that of uh, reducing the levels of fear, but escalating it. Um, I would argue that uh, where we needed empathy, we have seen uh, bravado against society that has been battered the way it has been battered over the last uh, 10 or so years, and that has intensified uh, greatly. And this bravado is still bravado at all levels <laughs> because it doesn't deliver the material uh, benefits that society, yeah. uh, that democracy uh, promises. So the democratic dividend is all absent in this rhetoric that uh, is pumped in society. So, so that uh, so the fear. Yeah, I, I, uh, leading from what you're saying, uh, Prof. Leotla, I, I I'm wondering now. Because as you're speaking, what's conjuring up in my mind are images of strongman politicians. <laughs> and I'm wondering if we're having an advent of that happening right now. I want you to reflect on that a little bit. But before you do, I want us to take a quick break. Give us a call. 086-000-2032. Let's take a break. SAFM values your views. Be an active citizen. Give us a call, 86 I'm in conversation with Professor Seth Scooper. I'm in conversation with uh, Dr. Padi Liotla as well as Bataung uh, Kotsokwane, who is a technology researcher at iAfrican. Uh, Dr. Liotla, before we went to that break, I, I said, based on what you say, what's you know coming up in my mind, conjuring of images of strongman politicians, is that what we're seeing happening in our, de- in our democracy? Not whether they're in power or not, but it's politicians who can by decree just call for something into existence and it so happens it seems uh, i suppose uh, the context is uh, the 12 months uh, towards a, a very seminal election um, yeah. since 1994 so you are likely to see that kind of postering uh, whether strong men can emerge strong men politics can emerge in south africa I think we are way down the road from that kind of uh, prospect. Uh, I'm sure that will be fought in the um, legal systems uh, through the Constitution. I think that the Black Lawyers Association has already uh, taken government uh, to court on the matter of uh, the, the, the strongman mobilization of tanks in the streets uh, that reminds us of uh, apartheid. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that that has happened, and uh, we do not know what the outcome of that was yesterday or is it going to continue. Uh, there is a case in court around the electricity and uh, taking the strongmen who were in this space where you find that electricity level has dropped from level 16 that the writer was promising at to level two and one now, and you wonder what has happened. And I think South African society is very conscious around this. And uh, mm. the, the Constitution allows uh, a lot of elbow room and leg room uh, to, 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 to litigate in a systematic and legitimate fashion. So mm. strongman politics, I doubt. I mean, you see what happens in our parliament, uh, the politicians at each other's throats, uh, well, that strongman 
tactics, I think uh, will remain in that house, uh, but not uh, in the general South African uh, population. I think uh, the population is conscious enough uh, to reject uh, that kind of approach uh, to issues, however attractive it might, it might seem. The reality is that the strong man is the poverty, mm-hmm. the inequality, and it's the unemployment. That's the strong man that has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, you know, he, and it reflects the weak man in the process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's what it shows, yeah. <laughs> a weak man mentality who tries to uh, behave as a strong man. Yeah. But Aung, He's if, a strong man, basically, in the end. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But Aung, I want to come back to you. Um, what in, in what ways do people engage with the tweets coming from the EFF's main account, coming from uh, the uh, Julius Malema account, coming from the account of other prominent politicians such as Fikile Mbalula, who's also been tweeting quite prominently on this, coming even from the account of the national government uh, that put out tweets over the weekend that seemed to strongly denounce um, uh, the protest, but not directly so, and denouncing elements they, that they fear may pertain to the protest. How, how are South Africans engaging with it? How are they responding to it? Is it, is it in a, uh, a way where they are fanatic about it, depending on whether or not they may be EFF supporters, or in ways that they seem to be thinking independently about the material conditions? Well, it takes in our content uh, tracking tools at iAfrican are giving us a broad spectrum of like, what, what actually is happening. And we see uh, a lot of sharp sort of, you know, over, I think over the past three days, the data has shown a lot of sharp uh, activity on, uh, on, on Twitter, particularly regarding the national strike. Uh, days leading up, you know, when you had the EFF doing its press conference, you saw a lot of, you started to see sort of, you know, specific narratives. So the mood is a mood that there are a lot of accounts or content um, that are actually in support of the of the of the of the of the of the of the, of the strike action. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing, uh, we're seeing a sharp increase in terms of what we can say influence accounts that are really perpetuating that. A second observation that we see specifically this morning, uh, we're seeing uh, not only um, pictures of what is currently happening, but we're seeing a lot of videos and content of previous strikes being regurgitated ah. as if. It's, it's what's happening currently in the moment. So you'd find a video of the police arresting, you know, an individual or students. Uh, it would be reported as if it's happening right now. But then actually when you look at the meta, data, data behind it, it's a video from three, four years ago. Mm. So we're seeing a lot of that. And I think, you know, our listeners need to be very careful um, in terms of, you know, how they look at some of this. Some of this, some of this, some of this content. Absolutely. Batong, thank you so much for that, man. I appreciate it. And I know that we have to let you go now at half past, but I really, really do appreciate your insights. I think it's quite an important point you're raising there. Uh, The regurgitation of old videos and material uh, to make it seem contemporary, to make it seem uh, as though it's happening in the moment. And that may further spur up uh, uh, reactions uh, that are disproportionate, perhaps. Um, and that may itself be dangerous in terms of creating an image uh, that may not necessarily be the case on the ground. 
But uh, thank you so much for, for, for raising that. Really, really do appreciate it. Give us a call, 086-000-2032. We're taking your WhatsApp voice notes on 614 We're going to take the headlines on the other side of this. We continue the conversation. Kamukhele Teledi has your headlines. Conversations that you connect with and react to. SAFM. Good morning, it's Kaz from Durban. I do remember that during the July uprising in KZN, they were using drones. I can remember hearing them uh, in the middle of the night. So um, they've had that technology for a while, obviously, I suppose, and no one knew. Hi, Joe from Durban. In true uh, EFF style, Mr. Lema got his publicity um, by making threats, by promising violence. Um, now reach for them to say they don't condone violence. However, we must put this into context of what Mr. Malema's support is. He's a 5% party. And I think those in the media are responsible for giving him more than 5% of the share of media, that are, uh, equivalent to other political parties, are responsible for making him uh, the disability, giving him disability to threaten uh, and, and, and bring the country into a state of anxiety and etc etc well Julius Malem the EFF actually is more than double a 5% party but uh, I think point still quite uh, relevant over there um, Prof Cooper I want to maybe also reflecting on the conversation I asked uh, um, Dr. Liotla uh, just before we went to that break around strongman politics and, and, and ruling by fear stemming from the earlier point that you made over here I want to maybe then tie this to it. Are we seeing a moment, not just today, maybe let's say over the last decade, where politicians and political actors are using the vulnerabilities and sincere uh, material conditions of people for insincere politicking? That is to say, conjuring up protests, conjuring up political action not for the change of material condition, but really just an attempt to attain political mindshare. Uh, a lot of comparisons have been made uh, between the post Weimar Republic um, appeals by uh, and the rise of Nazism with some of the warmongering, if you like. Yeah. That, you, that you're referring to here. Because when people are at their socially and economically most vulnerable state, which we have progressively been in, it will still be comply uh, a reaction because, you know, whatever may be said, I mean, today, uh, and, you know, moving from, from my apartment to the office, it was, it was, it's a Sunday. Mm. You know, every Monday morning, one gets a lot of traffic, and you can hear the traffic in your apartment. But this morning was a very quiet Sunday. Perhaps. I think the uh, EFF uh, in organizing this uh, took into account tomorrow being a holiday and therefore, uh, you know, the segue into taking a long 
weekend from uh, the one we've just passed into tomorrow yeah. uh, is foremost on a lot of people who have the ability to take off uh, from work. So, yes, there has been a rise in the kind of uh, militant rhetoric that is, and, and we've seen it in Parliament for crying out loud. We've seen the expressions of uh, violence in Parliament. These are public representatives. And whatever one's sentiment may be about, uh, in this case, the EFF, because the EFF does raise uh, in very sloganeering fashion certain issues that are very important in our country. Yeah. But going in, immediately into the threats or the usage of threats, if you don't uh, comply, is not what our people require. Because we've been bludgeoned by the apartheid system, and yes, people would say, well, apartheid is no more with us for, what, 29, maybe even slightly longer. However, the intergenerational transmission of fear and degradation and loss of dignity, which our constitution plays a large role in on the latter, is at play here. So mm. however one wants to justify it, the rhetoric is totally not in comport with a democratic, constitutional democratic system where you can raise issues very vigorously. Mm, but mm. don't attack the man or the woman. Don't uh, make claims that you cannot substantiate. Don't create ire and rage in a situation where people are so vulnerable that anything is let loose. Are we so, using protests yeah, to fill the vacuum of ideas? Or do we have sufficient ideas? Do we have a democracy nah, of ideas? No, we don't. That's the sad thing. And this is where the public intellectuals in our midst, like uh, Padi, Lehorslats, and so on, become very important because in a singular way, Oliver, from the you know, towards the end of Mandela's uh, first heyday, you know, democracy cabinet, there has been a centralization in thought at a national and a provincial level. And I don't want to go into the provincialism of ethnicity, which makes Bantusanism look like a picnic. Yeah. But the centralization of that thought don't think, we will think for you. Uh, it has been part of our body politics. So mm. in this gap, you get younger groups like the EFF filling that space instead of conscientizing people on what they should be doing. They go about it with the threat or rhetoric, which some people can, can identify with, but the majority of citizens won't identify. Yeah. That's the sad uh, uh, obverse of, of their core.
Yeah. yeah. Uh, Prof. Liotla, do you agree that we don't have a politics of ideas? We have a politics for, uh, replaced it with a politics of protest? It's not politics of uh, protest. It's a politics of poverty of thought, uh, which certainly says we don't have politics of ideas. Obviously, people don't live on ideas. They live on, uh, they fight for material benefits. Yeah. Now, at the heart of uh, our eating this material benefit, uh, the politics of ideas are so poor that uh, they don't direct how we achieve those material benefits. And uh, this is in terms of uh, how you separate education, like uh, you know the three mantras of uh, poverty, inequality, and yeah. uh, and uh, and then uh, uh, so and unemployment. Yeah. But those have just become mantras. Where are the policies that actually deal with those? And uh, how far have we gone? Yes, mm. And the poverty of ideas that one has thought or thought of speaking would have addressed it. And then we have a robust decision as to how do we deal with it. At mm. the moment, uh, the policy stage is a hodgepodge of uh, things that are not even read. I mean, uh, the state of the nation has an important function like that one doesn't say. By mm. how much you reduce unemployment in the next year? Okay, I don't know that uh, that 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 is hollow. The hollow statement. So yeah. the hollow statement from the Minister of Finance. Yeah. So in terms of how we deal with the frustration of yeah. unemployment inequality and so on, and how this become contested in the policy space, which is the policy, yeah. hollow the poverty of thought in that space. And that's a really serious yet. So yeah. you go into this one thing, from men that appear to be strong on both ends. And that's really at the center of it. Yeah. Really serious poverty of thought. We're going to take a break. Give us a call. 086-000-203. Tom, in conversation with Professor Seth Cooper as well as Dr. Paddy Leo Hotler. On the other side of this, I'll be taking some of your calls on 86 2032 Oliver Dixon on SAFM. To the talking point, my name is Oliver Dixon. I'm in conversation with Professor Seth Cooper, the president of the Pan-African Psychology Union, as well as Dr. Paddy Liotla, the, uh, the former statistician general. We're taking a look at the national shutdown taking place and unpacking it uh, from different I guess, layers and textures uh, that takes us to the center of the thinking around political leaders at the center of this, as well as the electorate and those participating in that, contrasting it against not just our contemporary history, but also our pre-democratic history and placing it in in, in that context um, of material conditions and the politics of ideas that are supposed to complement it, which are seemingly absent. Let's go to the lines. Sipo in Houtspreit. Sipo, good morning. Uh, good morning, Oliver, and our uh, guests, and also fellow listeners. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Go ahead, sir. Uh, thank you. Uh, I just want to thank uh, the EFS for the protest of today. Uh, this weekend, I didn't have a load shedding. I sleep well, everything went well in my house. I heard you saying that it's not because of the EFS, it's because of SPOM, what, what, what. I heard you for that, but myself, I'm taking the EFS because I think 
is the EFF. Then lastly, as I'm Patrick, um, this issue, I heard that these guys, the, the police, they managed to identify the hotspots where they stationed police officers in different uh, places where they say the these are hotspots. And during um, uh, normal days, like in some other days, it is not a protest. I don't know why these police are not going there to those hotspots and then our people are getting hijacked, killed, robbed and everything bad happened to them. Meanwhile, the police, they know this hotspot. But now because there's a shutdown, the police, they are out there, they are doing these things. I just want to ask Mr. Taylor to leave those police there at the hospital in tomorrow and until, until they must do their job, they must be on the ground. They must <laughs> yeah. go there and hide when there is a protest, a legitimate protest, and then you bring them. You, because the EFF didn't say that where are they going to protest, but they, the police, they know this hotspot. They mm. managed to send guys there. So my plea for Bekikele and uh, Masemona is that they must leave those police there. They must monitor. The yesterday, last late, um, I was watching SABC phone. Then there is then the northwest. I managed to see those vehicles at the corners in every corner. You know, it was safe if you want to drive there to walk. People they were so safe. So those police, they must remain there on the ground. They mm. must not sit there in offices and read newspapers, talk soccer and some other things. They must be there. Thanks to EFF. Thanks, Oliver. Thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. Mduduzi in Nelspray. Mduduzi, good morning. Hey, good morning, Oliver. How are you, my brother? I'm well, I'm well. Go ahead. Yes, man. I just want to make a little input. I'll just be brief, okay? Uh, you see, people don't understand the significance of this uh, national shutdown, which I call the uh, a short action. Uh, you know, it's very significant. Uh, our people so they want to take action right now and demand those the powers that be to deliver their needs, what they need and what they require. So I'll take it this perspective, Oliver. You see, uh Oh, sorry, Oduzi, we your line is cutting up terribly there. Can I ask that you just repeat that? I'm saying our government system that has been in, in place for the last, I don't know, 20 something or yeah. has failed, has, has sold our minerals to private entities. I, I was just reading right now uh, on the internet. Our, our reserve bank is owned by 250 shareholders. Right? Our I'm going to put you back and see if we can get you on a better line there. That line is not holding. That line is not holding stable for us there. Uh, let's see if no. we can get you on a better line to hear you clearly clearer there. Uh, Michael's in Abeja. Michael's, good morning. Morning, morning, Oliver. Um, mine is just a quick one. Two comments, right? What this um, shutdown um, has proven to me is that there's nothing wrong with ESCO. Um, actually, load shedding is, is a scheme for privatization because we don't have load shedding. Wait, Michael, how do you link load shedding to the shutdown? No, but yeah, what is the shutdown for? One of the core, one of the core that the ESF is perfectly right. about the shutdown is because of load shedding. Right. Okay. And we've had load shedding. All of a sudden, we don't have load shedding. So my point is, ESCOM, there's nothing wrong with it. If we can, if load shedding can just stop all of a sudden, because there's a shutdown, 
Then there's so, Madrigo with Escom. That's my point. So can I take you back to Escom's uh, update a few weeks ago on load shedding that projected a uh, weeks ago yeah. already that should we be able to maintain plant performance at this level, we should have lower levels of load shedding uh, from the middle of March going onwards. Do you re- I don't know if you recall yeah, that, but do you, do you not no, give... But we, we, no, we've had these uh, so-called uh, uh, projections. Um, so what happens then if after the shutdown, load shedding comes back to stage 4, 5, 6? What, 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 what then happens? That, that's what no, I'm no, no, but I'm, but I'm asking, are you not taking that into account where ESCOM already projected no, that this I would don't. be the levels uh, of Russia? No, I honestly don't. I, 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 I honestly don't. I think uh, ESCOM is, is, is a privatization uh, uh, scheme that's happening there. But that's just one. The second thing is the, the shutdown has also proved that the police actually have resources to fight crime. That, that, yeah. That's also very clear. Because if you look at the technology that they are deploying for, 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 for innocent people who want to protest, and the amount of police that's on the streets, then it means that the police have the capacity. The question mm-hmm. is, why don't they do it in, 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 to fight crime in normal times? And mm-hmm. then the third thing is, for me, you know, deploying the army on, on citizens is, is, a, is a sign of... Um, a dictatorship, and, and, and because you see, dictatorship doesn't happen uh, in one incident. It happens over a period of time. Mm. Now, I was thinking to myself: in a democracy, it's parliament that can deploy the army. Parliament will then sit and say, "Okay, we need to deploy the army." But the the, the president says, "I've deployed the army," and then I inform parliament. It, 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 I don't understand that. Yeah, well, that is technically how it works. The president, as the commander-in-chief, can deploy the army, but has to inform parliament about it. Yeah, so so the president can then... So tomorrow, the president can say, I'm deploying the army willy-nilly, and then I inform... Well, parliament. not willy-nilly. The president has to he has to justify it. He can't willy-nilly deploy the, uh, the army. Yeah, but that, that's what's happening now. Why, why are you deploying the army? What, what right. is it? What, why? Okay, fair point. Exactly. Thank you so much. Appreciate your call, Michaels. Uh, give us a call, 86 We're going to take a quick break. SAFM values your views. Be an active citizen. Welcome back to the show. My name is Oliver Dixon. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Prof. Liotla, before I go back to the lines, the call I just had with Michaels in Kabecha made me made me think of something, and it's an important question. Do we have fact-based political debate in this country, or is there even an appetite for that? Right, and because um, I, I say that because he, Michael's links the protest uh, to the end of or the reduction of load shedding, and not to ESCOM's projections uh, more than a month ago that this would be the level of load shedding at this point in the month, um, and says no, no, it's entirely because of the protest. I don't believe ESCOM. It seems like there's a deficit, a trust deficit between the electorate or citizens and institutions that form our body politic but there also seems to be its implication is that we're also not having a fact-based political debate uh, environment do we have appetite for that we had a fact-based decision making probably wouldn't have gone for the wait wait can i pause you there are you saying we don't have fact-based decision making Yes, I've uh, run the numbers <laughs> in the country, and I yeah. know that uh, that doesn't happen. And a classical example 
is a, a just an existence. Uh, which in the, in the face of all facts, he still decided that he was close commercially and close other. Secondly, the writer was saying you have load shedding six level sixteen uh, as he was the executive of ESCOM. And yet ran that uh, that, that that message all the time and in practice we are heading to that. And he was now fired from March from office on the twenty second of February or something like that. And suddenly we have a, a different projection in the presence of the board and everybody. Mm. I have similar skepticism that uh, whatever has happened at, at ESCOM was not fact-based. Yeah. It was an agenda to drive that energy transition. And what we see now is a different uh, form of information. And this is where ESS is quite correct. And this is where the, the, the parties that are taking government to court to find out in cabinet what level of transparency informs what happened at ESCOM. Mm. So that deficit of policy lines that are based on facts is real. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite real. I, I, I see now government doesn't use evidence. And it's much more to my frustration as the chief statistician of the country. Yeah. I, I, I want to give you an opportunity to reflect on that question as well, uh, Professor Cooper. Look, there is clearly, and I'm, all the uh, surveys done uh, over time show a decreasing trust in public leadership and especially government. The political party dispensation has reached its, uh, its lowest point. And we don't have the kind of engagement that we ought to have based on evidence, as Dr. Lehotla points out. In fact, most of the statements made by uh, top leadership, uh, and including the president from time to time, does not rely on the relevant facts and data that can propel whatever vision his government has mm. to take us to another place. So having said that, I think that most of our politics is devoid of vision, devoid of the ability to take us to an understanding of what X or Y entity will actually do. What they, what they end up sloganeering over is we want X, we want Y, and lack of uh, jobs, lack of electricity, that's the, late, uh, that's the mantra recently, but no real solutions on how, if they were entrusted, would deliver us from those evils. Yeah. So, uh, and, and how often, almost in daily conversation and discussion on my part, I can testify to the fact that most people say, well, it's not civil, who? Yeah. And it's not the ANC, who? You see, so we've gotten uh, used to an abnormality in our society mm. where the status quo remains. And I'm afraid if it continues this way, yeah. we're leading for 
a wide scale civil conflict we're leading to uh, indeed that horror of uh, July 2021 yeah, absolutely. repeated in different forms in different parts of the country. Yeah. We've seen small outbreaks in Congo and so on. It's going to, uh, you know, somebody is uh, clever enough to join the dots. We'll have an ongoing civil conflict. And that's why your initial reason for calling us and discussing this is so important at this time. Yeah. Could there not have been a different way to do it? Could there not have been a demonstrable protest against the, the kind of things that are happening in an orderly, peaceful manner, which will garner the EFF support? This way, more people are going to look at the consequences. Heaven help us if some of those happen with armed forces around. But we'll say, you have taken our bread away today. There'll be conflict between employer and employee, not not, mess, not that that is not there, but we cannot afford any further war talk and perpetuation yeah. of the war in our country. You and I, them and us, this language uh, divide that we have, you know, group of warring entities that need to overcome our narrowness and look at our common humanity and aspire to our common humanity. But having said that, material conditions when people are hungry out there will determine how things happen. Yeah, we're going to have to pause it there for now. I'll take Mduduzi uh, Nasprecht as well as Bhutan and Rosebeck. I'll be taking your calls on the other side of this. The Talking Point on SAFM. Weekdays, 9 a.m. till midday. Oliver Dixon on SAFM. I'm in conversation. We wrapped up the conversation I had in the previous hour there uh, with Professor Sats Cooper, who's the president of the Pan-African Psychology Union, as well as Dr. Pari Liotla, former statistician general. And earlier on in that conversation, we were joined by Bataung Kotokwane, who is a technology researcher at iAfrican.